Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Word beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless this reading of His holy word to us this morning. Amen. Well, let's turn back to the passage that we read from Romans chapter 3 as we seek God's help and blessing, focusing our attention upon verse 14. The Apostle Paul here, as we've said, is describing the sinful condition of fallen humanity. The reason that we need a Savior. Our guilt. Our sinfulness. And it impacts every aspect of our lives. Uh, Our conduct. Our mind, our thoughts, our attitudes, and our words. Not just our works, but our words. We saw that in verse 13. Verse 14, building upon that declaration that their throat is an empty tomb, their tongues have practiced deceit, they've got the poison of asps under their lips. And verse 14 says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, we've seen this type of language before as Paul is addressing the sinfulness of fallen humanity, in particular with respect to the Gentiles in chapter 1. Verse 29 of that chapter, being filled with all unrighteousness. And then later in that same verse, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, so on and so forth. So the Apostle has emphasized the fullness of sin. How sin is 
contagious. It metastasizes. It, it expands. It grows. It fills. We're either filled with the power and presence of God or we're filled with the power and presence of sin. And of course, the vacuum of God's presence created by the fall in the human heart opens the way for sin to take over, to ravage, and take possession and ownership in the sons of disobedience in whom the prince of the power of the air is at work. And that takes place in, in every aspect. We've said that uh, not every unbeliever, not every unconverted person is as wicked as they could be. They haven't hit the fullness in that sense because Paul says evil men and imposters go from bad to worse. So if they're getting worse, it means uh, they used to be, you know, they're worse now than they used to be. So there's, there's a give and take here in terms of the degrees. And yet, when God is absent from the soul, what else could fill the void but sin? Varying degrees of that manifested, of course. But fundamentally, sin fills the human heart. Sin fills the words and the expressions of the wicked whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Uh, It's interesting. Um, Sin never satisfies. Uh, We sang that in Psalm 59. Whatever we're doing, oftentimes we're doing it to be satisfied. We desire to experience what is good. So, So, whether it's our words or our actions... By nature, we're designed to seek out and seek to obtain that which we think is good. Now, the unbeliever has a wrong idea of what is good, and so he or she seeks to be satisfied or filled with things other than God and what God has designed for that purpose. But nevertheless, they're seeking to be satisfied. Uh, Psalm 4, many people say, who will show us goodness? And so, with their words, they're seeking satisfaction. They're seeking to, to at times vent their frustration so that they can feel satisfied. They're seeking to obtain what they want. They're angry with someone. They want to hurt that person. They speak a nasty word because they think it's going to make them feel better. And they're filled with these things and yet these things do not fill them or satisfy them. And that's why they continue to speak these evil words. That's why when it comes to sinful lust. We seek things that God has forbidden. We think it's going to satisfy us. We become filled with lust, filled with envy, filled with sin, and yet we're empty because we've rejected the the wellspring of life and satisfaction. We've hewn out cisterns that can hold no water. So it's just interesting and, and ironic that The wicked here, even though their cursing and bitterness reflects a heart that is unsatisfied, a heart that is bone dry, that is empty, that that is lacking in the things that they really need, nevertheless, they're filled. They're filled to the brim with this unsatisfying reality of sin, cursing and bitterness. Now we've looked at the various aspects of sinful speech that Paul outlines in this passage of Scripture. Uh, We've looked at filthy words. Their throat is an open tomb. We've considered deceptive words. Their tongues have practiced deceit. 
We've looked at venomous words. The poison of asps is under their lips. And we've seen there's some overlap here. For instance, the venomous words that we considered are lodged under their lips. So there's something of deception even at times in our venomous words. We don't always immediately strike in violence. Sometimes we slander, we gossip, uh, we, we, uh, we attack people in more subtle and sneaky ways. Uh, the, the poison is under our lips, under our tongue. So there's deception in our venomous words. There's venom in our deceptive words oftentimes, and there's filthiness in all of these categories of sinful speech. And so as we move on to uh, verse 14, and we consider a mouthful of cursing and bitterness, we need to recognize that in that mouth that's filled with cursing, for instance, you're going to find elements of filthiness, you're going to find elements of venom and malice and anger and, and rage and violence in these words that are, that are characterized here as cursing. We're going to refer to them this morning as profane words, but again with that proviso that they're also frequently filthy and they're also frequently venomous and violent against others. Uh, but the, the ungodly, their mouth is full of cursing, full of profane words. In the Bible, a curse oftentimes, most frequently, refers to a certain oath of malediction. Uh, an oath that is added to something that you're saying that basically communicates the idea, if what I'm saying is false, let God's judgment fall upon me. Or in some way adding a vertical element of accountability to the things that we're saying. And so if I, if I testify in court, but I swear to tell the truth, I swear an oath to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, even if they take God out of the language of the oath, the fundamental concept there is that, that I'm calling down curses upon myself. God, may God hold me accountable at the day of judgment. May He curse me if what I'm saying is not true. And in some states, I think it's North Carolina comes to mind, probably some others, in the early part of our history as a civilization, as a society, in, uh, in this country, and even, you know, subsequent to 1776 for a little while, you couldn't testify as a witness in court unless you acknowledge that there is a final judgment at which point you will be accountable to God for what you're saying. You actually were not allowed to testify if you did not acknowledge that. Now, the, the, the point here is that an, a, a curse is an oath that's added to show the significance of the accountability that God will bring if you were to lie under oath. It's also something that um, you know, adds a certain level of accountability in terms of a promise that you might make. So let's pivot from the courtroom and somebody testifying to somebody making a promise. Maybe entering into marriage and making a covenant promise. Joining the church and making a promise uh, to... You know, you're professing Christ and you're promising that, that you're going to live the Christian life. Promises that you make in the business world. We could go on. When you make a promise, you would add a curse, an oath of malediction, calling down again God's judgment on yourself if you fail to keep 
your promise. There's something of this in the life of Abraham. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, uh, the animals are cut in pieces. And ordinarily in that society, the two individuals who were making the covenant would both walk through in between the pieces of the animals. And that would have been as an oath of malediction or a curse that they're calling down on themselves. If either of us fails to keep our promise according to this covenant that we've made with one another, uh, let us be cut to pieces as well. And so, of course, significantly, God was the one who walked through the pieces of the animals, showing that God's covenant of grace is ultimately dependent upon His covenant faithfulness. He swears by, by no one higher than Himself. He can only swear by Himself. Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces. God is the fundamental basis and foundation of the covenant of grace. It doesn't mean that we don't have a duty to be faithful to our promises, but it means that even our faithfulness as believers is rooted and grounded in His faithfulness to be the Lord who sanctifies us, to be the one who gives us strength. But in any event, that's an example of this sort of curse that is called down upon the one who would break their promise, or as we said, the one who would tell a lie under oath. With that said, this type of curse was often abused. It was often abused. You see this in terms of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. As He's confronting the Pharisees and the Jewish people of His day who would utilize these sorts of oaths in a way for which they were not intended. Uh, The third commandment says that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shouldn't make an oath and then break it. You shouldn't make a frivolous oath, a vain oath, a meaningless oath. You shouldn't misuse or abuse this idea of taking God's name and making an oath or swearing an oath in His name. And Jesus confronts the people of His day with a particular way in which they uh, abused these kinds of oaths. You see it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus is not suggesting here that we don't use oaths and vows in certain solemn situations where they're called for. The Bible tells us we need to do that. We could could look at passages that bring that out even in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul will say things like, uh, I'm telling the truth. In my conscience, according to the Holy Spirit, he adds these things to add a sense of solemnity and accountability to his words. Jesus himself frequently says, uh, Amen, Amen. Verily, verily, I say unto you. He adds these words to, to add the sense, not that he's not telling the truth in other cases, but he's saying, what I'm about to say is absolutely true. He uses that idea. 
that he adds to his yes or his no. But the fact is that Jesus is confronting the people of his day for turning these oaths, these curses, these types of uh, these aspects of, of biblical speech, turning them into something frivolous, turning them into something that they can use for their own advantage. So for instance, they're saying, you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. You shall perform your oaths to the Lord. So what they're saying is, well, um, you're upset with me because I didn't keep my promise. But I didn't make the oath to the Lord, right? I made the oath, uh, I swore by heaven. I didn't swear by the Lord, I swore by heaven. So maybe I'm less accountable. So there's less of a penalty for me failing to keep my promise or not paying my debt or whatever agreement there was. Or I've testified in court and, or something like that. I, I, I gave some kind of testimony and I, I swore by Jerusalem, but I didn't swear in the name of the Lord. So they're trying to come up with ways to subvert the basic requirement of biblical faithfulness and truth-telling. And they're playing games with God's ordinance of oaths and curses. And Jesus rebukes them for that and says at this point, stop incorporating all of these extra things into your speech. Just tell the truth and keep your promises. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And if you're trying to complicate things to your own advantage to try to get get some type of edge, some type of advantage against other people, then that is from the devil himself, the father of lies. Don't do it. So, Jesus is confronting people that are overusing oaths and vows. They're using them all the time, frequently, as a way of diluting the solemnity of their speech and of their promises and of their testimony. So, this is a problem. Jesus deals with it as well in Matthew chapter 23 with the seven woes against the Pharisees. But there's an even greater way in which these oaths and curses are abused. And we see that in our own day. And I really think that there's a progression. We go from reverencing God's name and taking Him seriously and using oaths and vows in that way to heighten our sense of accountability to the judgment of God and to the curse of God. All liars end up in the lake of fire. Those kind of things. It heightens our sense of accountability to God. But then we go to the place where we're now using these oaths and curses in a more frivolous way uh, and it dilutes the sense of that accountability in the way that the Pharisees are using it. Eventually, if we follow the path of the Pharisees and people are using these oaths in their daily speech all the time, you know, you go to the dry cleaners and you're swearing, you know, things like this, okay, um, when it gets to that point, eventually these oaths become meaningless and you eventually get to the place where we are today. You get to the place where we are today where people aren't using religious oaths in everyday speech because there's some desire to um, you know, confirm a promise or testimony. They're, they're, we've gotten even worse than the Pharisees. right? Now we just use them in common speech as an exclamation point. Now we just use them frivolously without even knowing what we're saying. And we speak using religious words, solemn words, 
words that deal with God, as our catechism says, His names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. These things that are inherently associated with God and His holiness and who He is and what He's done. And we have a society filled with people that are using these terms. They're speaking of hell and damnation. And they're speaking of goodness, gracious, and all these kinds of attributes of God. They're, they're using them, and they're using them without any sense of what they mean. Uh, they're using the name Jesus Christ as a curse word. Not because they think that it's a curse or they're calling down divine accountability. They're just, they, it, we've come to the point where the words themselves are meaningless in our society. And if you've ever tried to watch a movie using VidAngel, and uh, you know, if you're going to watch a movie, that's probably a good way to do it. You can, you can uh, tick the box of all the things that you don't want to, to be portrayed in the movie. It gets rid of uh, you know, foul language and, and inappropriate things for movies. That, that's, you know, the Mormons developed it, but we can give thanks for that anyway. It's, it's a really helpful tool. But when you do that as a parent and you're Xing out the things that you don't want to be shown in the movie... If you're like me, you're amazed at even in just some movies that you would think, oh, this is pretty tame, this, is not, this probably doesn't have a whole lot in it. How many times uh, that blasphemy category, which again, the Mormons call it blasphemy, they have a section for that, and, and how many things pop up in the blasphemy column where you have to say, nope, 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 really, you just click the whole thing and, and it takes them all out. But how many times God and His worship and His name and anything to do with Him or His Son is blasphemed? It's frequent. It's frequent. And if you think of how much media is streaming throughout the entire world all day long, you start to think how many millions of times per day in 2022 was God's name dishonored? How many times per day, not just talking about people in their conversation, you may work with people like this and they're constantly taking God's name in vain and using these kinds of religious terms, oaths and curses that they don't know what these things mean, but they're using them. Not just that, but all the things on the television, all the things streaming on the internet. If you take the sum total of these things throughout the entire world, how many millions, how many billions of times per day in the year past was God's name treated with irreverence. And you begin to see the significance in the third commandment when it says the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There are a lot of explanations for what's happening in the world today, what's happening in our country. We see what appears to be God's judgment. We saw it in Romans 1. Uh, We see God judging the world. We see our nation under divine chastisement. We see all kinds of disturbing and frightening things. And we need to be able to look at what's happening in the world through the lens of the third commandment. Not saying that's the only lens, but this is a significant lens for interpreting God's providence all around us to say, okay, the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. So that means... God will punish this sin. If it's happening millions, bazillions of times a day or throughout the year, then God is angry and there are judgments. Not just judgments at the last day. Of course, that is the case. 
Psalm 139 verse 20 says, Lord, Your enemies take Your name in vain. And that's true. Your enemies, Lord, take Your name in vain. In other words, if we don't repent of this sin, and we can fall into it in various ways, we're going to look at that in a moment, some ways that we can proactively address this sin and repent and move forward with reverent speech, but the fact of the matter is that God will not hold you guiltless for taking His name in vain. If you don't repent, if you don't recognize this sin, confess it, and make every effort to strive to reverence God's name, then Psalm 139 verse 20 says that you're an enemy of God. And if you're an enemy of God, that's not going to go very well because He's almighty. He's all-powerful, okay? Uh, If you're an enemy of God, that means that you're going to spend eternity with the enemies of God, and that's the place prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's an important issue. Now, um, every command of God has various degrees of sin against it. And Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law versus other matters that are less weighty. That's not to say that we ought to take any aspect of God's law without seriousness, but it is saying that you and I might violate the third commandment in a certain way, and and we need to address that, but you know, if, if I, let's say uh, I'm in a conversation and um, I, I make an inappropriate joke or pun about something dealing with God's ordinances or, or the Word of God or something like that, you know, you hear this from time to time. As Christians, we could be tempted to this, to, to be making jokes and puns about, about God's Word and about His ordinances. And I'm not going to use examples because that, you know, that just might... Uh, increase the temptation here. Um, well, I'll use one that's so ridiculous nobody would ever do it, but you know, you see these you know, um, Christian joke books. You know, where do you find baseball in the Bible? Oh, in the big inning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that's so bad and so ridiculous, I feel comfortable sharing it because I don't think anybody would ever use that. But these kinds of things. Now, if you fall prey to that, okay, that's something to come to grips with. Maybe in this sermon, there'll be some things that you'll realize, ooh, I need to deal with that in my life. I need, I need to put a stop to this type of speech. I never even realized where it came from. And you need to repent of that. But I'm not suggesting that that's the same level as somebody who just shouts out the name of Jesus Christ as a cuss word. Okay? It's breaking the same commandment and, and we shouldn't take any of these things lightly, but understand there are varying degrees. So take that as a caveat, but let's, let's think about the way in which our catechism outlines our reverence for the name of God that we ought to have. Uh, it speaks of God's names and titles. So that's the obvious one. That's the one that if, if we're not clear on that, that means we've got, we, we really are, are not clear on some very important things, okay? If I claim to be a Christian and I'm saying OMG and oh my Lord and things like that in a way that's not like in the Psalms, oh my God, I trust in you, but it's in a sort of frivolous and vain way. If I'm using God's names and titles in that kind of way, then that's a direct violation of the third commandment. That's something that I need to deal with. That's something I need, I need to just recognize. This is 
a flagrant violation of God's holiness. God's name is set apart. I should not be using it just as an expression or as an exclamation. Uh, I need to only use His name and His titles when I'm using them in a reverent, worshipful way to speak about the glory of God. His names, His titles. That's an obvious one, but it is one that in our day, in church culture, I think perhaps you would be surprised how many times professing Christians and their children will say things along the lines of OMG. And one of the ways that it gets tricky is that uh, our society has invented a number of substitute words that are put in place of God that for all intents and purposes are are just a, a few little letters away from taking God's name in vain. And we need to be aware of this. Our standards speak of the third commandment requiring us to abstain from minced oaths. So we need to be careful. You know, if I say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that's the same level as just taking God's name in vain. But I'm saying when we put it under the microscope and we really sharpen our pencils and we try to avoid anything that in any way uses God's name in vain or tends in that direction, we have to avoid the minced oaths, the oaths, the things that have been, that have been tweaked and changed a little bit to avoid saying God's name. So just be aware of that. That's a dynamic that we need to be aware of. And, and this was, when I became Reformed, this was new to me. These are things that I studied the catechism. As I studied the Word of God, we'll look at some verses. It, it, uh, it took some time, but I can say it's, once you do it, it's pretty easy to get rid of those substitute words. Um, also, God's attributes, His names, titles, attributes, His attributes. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. God says, I'll show you all my goodness and I will proclaim my name before you. So Moses in the cleft of the rock sees something of a vision of God's presence and notice how God proclaims His name, the Lord. The Lord God, this is Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So he's dealing with this revelation of God's glory, this revelation of God's name in a reverent manner. But notice, God's name is not just Jehovah God. It's not just His name or His title. But it is His attributes. Merciful and gracious. His long-suffering. His goodness. His truth. His mercy goes on to describe His justice. So you can see God in, in, from God's perspective, and He's the one that wrote the law, so you know, original intent. He's saying, my name includes my attributes. So if there are attributes that have come into common patterns of speech based upon our religious heritage, religious types of words and phrases that have now been so overused and have become so vain 
and meaningless as just an explanation or, or, or a, an, an exclamation when we see something surprising. Um, oh, goodness, you know. That's God's name. That's God's name. And the origin of those types of phrases, I think, would be pretty easy to trace back to religious language that ultimately stems from our Christian heritage. But goodness gracious, great balls of fire, you know, you have it in music, you have it in the lyrics of various songs, and and it's very easy to fall prey to that if we're not aware of it, so this is just an FYI, that's an aspect of God's name. God's ordinances, I mentioned, um, you know, the Bible being being made a a means of humor and things like that, Uh, but God's ordinances. Think about baptism. We're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, The benediction is the placing of God's name upon the people of God. And so we need to be reverent with respect to God's ordinances. Not making jokes. I mean, and, and, and there are many that can be made. This is an area where I struggle, an area where I have to repent, have to be careful. Uh, the temptation to make puns and, and jokes and, and things like this, we need to be very careful. But baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, the ordinances of God, let's be very careful. Uh, there are many things that, can be, that we can point out that we can observe that are humorous in the life of the Christian church. I'm not saying we shouldn't engage in humor, but I'm saying let's be careful to have some boundaries so that the subject of our humor doesn't encroach upon the holy things of God so that the next time our children are sitting in worship observing a baptism or the next time we have the Lord's Supper, their mind isn't drawn to to that joke about the bread or about the water and, and these kinds of things. Let's try to be careful to treat these things in a reverent and respectful way. I mean, if you went to a funeral and you were making jokes about the casket and about, you know, people wouldn't take that very well, I don't think. Most people wouldn't. Uh, So why not treat the things of God with a similar reverence or respect? I'm not saying the church should be a funeral procession, but what I'm saying is when you're dealing with something very serious, when somebody dies, okay, very serious, uh, we take it seriously. We don't treat it frivolously. Uh, and you see that the name of God attached to his ordinances. It's attached to his word as well. Uh, Psalm 138, God has exalted and magnified his word far above all his name. And so uh, God's word is the greatest and most powerful means by which God reveals Himself. His name is the general category of how He reveals Himself, and His Word is the most powerful aspect. So when we dishonor His Word, we dishonor His name. And that means, you know, if, if I do something in the pulpit, and it, you know, after the service, you're tempted to focus on something I did that was funny, or something I said, or misstated, or whatever, be careful with that. Again, um, focus on the aspect of the sermon that you found meaningful. Focus on what God is doing, what God is speaking, what, what you're listening to in terms of the voice of Jesus Christ. Don't fall prey to the temptation to just immediately uh, gravitate toward what is light and frivolous because it really takes away from our reverent response to the Word of God. Also, His works. I read in Exodus 34 
It was not only God's attributes that God declared to Moses in the cleft of the rock, but it was also His works. Keeping. right? That's a participle. That's referring to an ongoing action. God is doing something. He's keeping mercy for thousands. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He is by no means clearing the guilty. He is visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, so on and so forth. So you can see God's action is to be held in high esteem. It is part of His name. Many of the names and titles that are given to God reflect what He does, what He's doing, what He has done in the past. These things ought to stir us up to worship, not to make fun, not to, not to cause everything to revert to this sort of frivolous lightness that so characterizes our age. Uh, the works of God ought to be something that gives us great delight and meaning and joy in our lives. Psalm 111, verse 2, The works of the, the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. We ought to look at the work of God and you know, just think of... Uh, examples in the Bible. God sends fire to consume Nadab and Abihu. Now, I don't think you'd have to be very creative if you wanted to start making, you know, making jokes about that and speaking of God's judgment in a certain way. I mean, you have these bumper stickers. And again, I think it's just so stupid. I don't think it's going to tempt anybody to do it. But, you know, um, eternity, smoking or non-smoking, it's ridiculous. It dishonors God that, that type of language, that type of expression actually begins to dilute any sense of accountability at the last day because it makes God's judgment a big joke. So, let's take His works very, very seriously. The Lord will not hold us guiltless if we take any of these aspects of His name, any of these aspects of himself, his reputation, who he is, what he does, what he's ordained. If we take these things lightly, we will receive judgment or at least chastisement from the Lord. And when we begin to put our speech under a microscope, we can understand why somebody like Isaiah would say, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. When we begin to see how spiritual the law of God is, when we begin to see how much it requires, and how even as believers, we are plagued and polluted by sin, sinful ideas, sinful practices, conformed to the sinful speech of the world. When we begin to see that, it heightens our sense of a need for Christ. It deepens our humility. And as we prepare to come to the Lord's table later this month, as we examine ourselves, what are the sins that are going to give us that most acute sense of needing the righteousness of Christ, of needing the cross of Calvary, of needing a resurrected Savior to empower us to live no longer as the Gentiles live, but to speak words of life and peace and holiness and reverence. These are the kind of sins that are going to bring us there. These are the kind of things that brought Isaiah to the point where he repented, he was pardoned, and in Isaiah 6, he was commissioned to go speak God's Word 
to the world around him. And so, conviction of these kinds of sins, making these adjustments, repenting in these ways, seeking to hold God and everything connected with Him in that holy, solemn way, seeking to do that with reverence upon our lips, my friends, that is the name of the game for this coming year. That's what we need to be focusing on. We've said from James that the way we use our words is a rudder that directs our lives. If we're reverent in our words, it's going to increase the reverence of our attitude, our thoughts, our witness. People in the workplace are going to notice. So we're not nitpicking here. It's not sort of legalistic checklist, but it's saying think about this paradigm of regarding God as holy, speaking of Him as holy in all of these different aspects, and look up these verses that I've mentioned, meditate on them, and run with that. Use that in the year ahead. Let me, let me conclude here with some, some things about bitter words. And I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on this uh, because we've already dealt with venomous words. And bitter words are very similar. So in our remaining time, we want to be thinking about Paul's statement here that the mouth of the ungodly is filled with bitterness. Both of these statements, by the way, come from Psalm 10, verse 7. The word bitterness does not appear in the Hebrew, but it's in the Greek translation of the Hebrew that Paul would have been using to minister to the Gentiles in Rome and other places. And he uses this word bitterness, and so we need to focus on it. Bitterness is very easily incorporated into our patterns of speech, even as believers. Okay? Bitter words are very common. And you find the epistles throughout the New Testament having to address this time and time again. Bitter words. And as I mentioned, the idea of cursing is not too far from venomous and bitter words either because sometimes we use these religious oaths, these religious exclamation points, these sorts of profane words that just have an eye-popping, they evoke an eye-popping response. And we can use these things to manifest our anger, our malice, our bitterness, uh, to put that punctuation on what we're saying in anger, in venom, in bitterness toward others. So these things are all connected. Our mouths can be filled with bitterness and we can use those curse words in that way. And my friends, that is a very, very dangerous thing. It's dangerous for you because 1 Corinthians 6 says that, as I mentioned last time, on that same list of damnable patterns of behavior that mark out the unconverted person reviling. If you're using words of cursing and bitterness to, as they say, cuss somebody out, or to spew out bitterness and rage and malice against someone, and you're using these kinds of four-letter words, these kinds of words, then Paul says if that's your pattern of speech, that's a problem. No one who is characterized by reviling will enter the kingdom of God. So this is very, very serious in terms of your own salvation, in terms of your own assurance of salvation, 
you, you can't allow this to take over your life. You can't be filled with words of bitterness and cursing, spewing forth your malice at other people. If you are, Paul says, you need to repent or you will perish eternally. This is a mark of the unconverted. They're filled with these words of bitterness and of cursing against other people. The book of James, in James chapter 1, again, we're, we're looking at some similar passages as before, but I, I want to bring this home on this point. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. He goes on, chapter 3, and verse 9. With the tongue we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Did you notice there on the one hand he's saying this is true of us as Christians at times. We are using the same mouth to say things that are a blessing and things that are a curse. So that is a reality. That is a temptation. That is a struggle. That is something we hear a sermon like this. We need to take it in, be convicted, and repent of that reviling because that does happen. Christians do that and that's why he is rebuking them for it in that passage. But notice by the end of it, he ends by saying, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. So by the end of it, he's reinforcing the fact that the true Christian will hear this message and repent and make strides and be sanctified day by day in this area. If it's ultimately the case that I persist in my sinful, bitter, reviling speech and I never change and I say, well, that's just my personality or that's just what happened in my day. I had a rough day. If, if I don't actually respond to what James is saying with repentance, then he's saying ultimately you can't have both, right? It's not about perfection, but it's about direction. Either you're zeroing in on this, fighting it and, and killing it and repenting of it, and seeking forgiveness for it, and humbling yourself, and moving forward in the Christian life, or ultimately, you're not a spring of fresh water. Ultimately, you're a cesspool of sinful speech. So so there's encouragement that we struggle with it. There's also a warning that if we don't repent, and if we don't seek new obedience in the year ahead, that's a very bad sign for our eternal destiny. Because it's ultimately earthly, sensual, and demonic if our mouths are filled with bitterness and envy. Paul elsewhere urges husbands not to be bitter against their wives. This can take place in marriage where things happen in marriage. 
Things are said. Things are done. Things are not said. Things are not done. Uh, and, and tension develops. And bitterness can develop. And there's a, a, a keeping a record of wrongs and a, not, uh, a refusal to forgive. A refusal to reconcile. And um, things build up to the point where there's just this entrenched bitterness one toward the other. Husband toward his wife. Wife toward her husband. And Hebrews 12 says that that root of bitterness, if it's not uprooted, what happens is, if it's not uprooted and replaced with the seed of God's Word and the peaceable fruit of righteousness, it will defile many. We saw Asaph said that it would defile the next generation. And this is the case. If we don't deal with bitterness in our marriage, if we don't deal with bitter speech toward our children, that can take place among parents, if we don't deal with these particular sins of bitterness and perhaps even of cursing, we are going to cause the next generation to stumble and many will be defiled. Many in the church, many in our family, many in the watching world, in society. It will go viral. It will discredit the Word of God and it will bring us down as the people of God in this society. And we may think, bringing this to a conclusion here, we may think that the way in which we shine as lights in the world, the way in which we're distinct from the world, is that we're against abortion. And the way in which we shine a light in the world is simply that uh, we believe in you know, limited government or something like that. I don't know. Or we believe we're against homosexuality and transvestites, transgender, or, or whatever it is. We're, we're shining our light in the world by taking a stand on these monumental, external, cultural, ethical issues. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't shine the light on those issues, but what I'm saying is, if our light on those issues is to have any credibility, then we need to take in the fullness of the biblical message on how we shine our light, how we manifest our distinctness from the wicked world around us. And so that's why in closing I want to bring up Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 challenges us with respect to this issue of bitter words. And of course, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's a bitter attitude. And it manifests itself in bitter words. But how are we going to shine our light in a consistent way in a way where the world is going to listen to what we have to say on all these controversial points and yet take it seriously that, wow, these people claim to have a relationship with the God of the universe. These people claim to be inhabited by the sovereign spirit of Jesus Christ. These people claim that they're different, that they've been born again, and that their lives at this moment are a miracle of supernatural grace. These Christians, they make bold claims. If we're going to have any credibility in making those claims and in making the stance, taking the stance that we do on these issues in the society, listen to what Paul says. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, or it could say holding forth, the word of life. 
So how are you going to hold fast and hold forth God's Word in a crooked and perverse generation? How are you going to shine as a distinct light bearer of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world? How are you going to do it? It's going to be in the mundane aspects of your daily life, day by day, in your home, in your classroom, in the workplace, in society, in the church, avoiding complaining and arguing. Children, do all things without complaining and arguing. Family members, as you deal with authority figures in the home, uh, whether it's the, the, the mother with her children, whether it's the husband and father with the rest of the family, uh, people of God, as you deal with your elders, as you deal with, you know, you, you get stopped by a police officer, if, as you deal with authority, uh, do everything without complaining and disputing. Don't be a complainer. Don't be someone who's always finding fault, always trying to delegitimize, always looking for a way out, always looking to discredit the person who's telling you what you need to do. And obviously there are limits on authority. That's not the point of this sermon. But don't be a complainer. Don't be a disputer. Don't be someone who makes life miserable for the person or people who are in authority over you. And that goes for your peers, that goes authority figures for the people under your charge. Don't make life miserable for them, always nitpicking, complaining, disputing with them, it never ends. And there's just this oozing bitterness that comes out from you. I mean, if the people in your life filled out a survey to characterize the way that you talk to them, whether you're under authority and your parents filled out the survey, or whether you're in authority and you're men, your wife or your children filled out the survey, or, or mothers, your children filled out the survey, or your husband filled it out, w- would they say that your speech is characterized by bitterness, complaining, arguing, it never ends? Is that the case? Would they say that? And if they would say that, why would they say that? If they're saying that, then you need to repent and take it very seriously. There's got to be something of a grain of truth in that type of feedback. So examine yourself. Examine yourself for complaining, arguing, bitterness, cursing, reviling. And humble yourself. And repent. And turn to Jesus. He's given us these verses that we might come to Him heavy laden with guilt, with the burden of grief and sorrow over our sins. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I will forgive you. I'll help you. I will live in and through you. Your words will be my words. I will guide you and sanctify you in your Christian life in 2023. And if there's one thing we can meditate on in the year ahead, it's Jesus Christ. Think of His seven words from the cross. Think of the bitterness that ought to have arisen in His heart if He was like you or me, right? Think of the way that we would have responded, the injustice, the suffering, and yet He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says to the dying thief who just a few minutes earlier had been joining the crowds in mocking Him, He says, today you shall be with Me in paradise. He's concerned for His mother. He says, Woman, behold your son. son. Son, behold your mother. He takes care of his family. He says, My God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. He honors and reverences God. He doesn't curse God. He honors God. My God, my God, as he cries out. And people thought he was calling for Elijah because they misunderstood his speech. Eloi, Eloi. They thought it was Elijah rather than my God. And so in order to clear things up so that he could get uh, the last two statements from the cross, he says, I thirst. And he gets the sour wine to wet his whistle. And then he says, it is finished to comfort you and to comfort me. While he's in the greatest need of comfort, it is finished. The cry of victory. And then, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So it's only in the last statement that he even addresses, in a sense, his own situation. My friends, meditate on that. Meditate, believe, and be conformed to that. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks that You are the God of history, that You uphold all things by the Word of Your power, that You have made us and not we ourselves, and that we can head into the year that is set before us, knowing that it is a year that You have decreed from all eternity in which You will work all things together for good for those who love You and those who are called according to Your purpose. May we continue to pursue that purpose, that calling, that love which You have placed in our lives through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.